Shut up and sit down. Welcome to another episode of the Superhero Movie Club, a community of superhero fans. All nerds welcome, but please wipe your feet at the door. I'm your comic book cultured host, Michael Maurer, joined in the proverbial studio by movie maestro, James Scatler-Hutzma, scientific scholar, Ben Anderson, and special guest returning for the third time on SHMC Podcast, our doctor friend, Dr. Amy Lauders. Welcome again, Amy. Glad to be back. Woohoo! Easily the most certified and qualified member to ever grace this podcast. That that's saying something. So thank you for that. <laughs> SHMC is your premier movie discussion podcast. Every week we continue our journey exploring our favorite subject, superhero movies. Every fan sees the movies differently, so we gather some amateur experts to discuss certain aspects of the movie. Whether it's money, comic books, science, or music, SHMC talks about it all in this week's episode. Good night, Agent Hellboy. Look, Agent, I know you don't like me, but I could take away your badge. Never had one. Kept asking, though. You will learn to obey me, follow protocol, and stay focused at all times. Uh, that word, focused? Yeah, with your accent. I wouldn't use it that much. I knew Professor Broom, young man. You didn't know Professor Broom? Yes, I did. Shut After up. my Shut accident, up. he designed this containment suit. A wonderful man. And even then, he was very hey, about your future. He... Stop it! Right now. Oh, what? Are you threatening me? Because I think I can take you. Excuse me? You heard me. I couldn't hear you from uh, from all the way over there. I can take you because you have one fatal flaw. Oh, I want to hear it. No, you don't. You can't take criticism. Try me. Can't take it. What's my flaw? Your temper. It gets the best of you, makes you weak, makes you vulnerable. Oh, crap. Hellboy 2, The Golden Army. And yes, there will be spoilers. Okay, we're going to start with first opinions on the movie as a whole. I think we will talk to the person who knows the least about this film first, and that would be Ben. Yeah, I get this movie confused with the first Hellboy because, like, oh yeah, Hellboy, there were Nazis in it and an artificial intelligence. And then I I read the plot synopsis and I was like, huh, I thought there were at least Nazis in it. But that turns out it was the first Hellboy. Um, so I've definitely seen this one, but apparently didn't make much of an impression on me. Oh, that's a shame. Go ahead, Skylar. In the process, I do remember uh, enjoying it quite a bit. It's very fun, breezy, and I was, and still am, impressed with the level of uh, imagination filmmakers like uh, Guillermo del Toro have in just bringing these kind of fantasy elements to life. So, while it's not one of the most memorable superhero movies we'll talk about. It's uh, still fairly well done. And go ahead, Amy. 
Well, I like, uh, you know, I had to uh, refresh my memory as to which Hellboy this was, too. And, of course, the, the takeaway I had when, when you asked me about it was, oh, isn't that the one where the girlfriend says she's pregnant in the end? I, I don't know why that's why what struck me. Maybe that's a girl thing. I don't know. <laughs> but um, I thought it was one of the, for a sequel, it was, it was a decent sequel, and it was a rich story. There was a lot to this particular film. So it's one that I'd see again just for the popcorn value, frankly. It was it was a good story. I watched this one right before we were recording this, and I gotta say, this movie is a is a hidden gem of sorts, in in that it's very forgotten among just the general like movie going populace, and we'll kind of talk about why that is in a little bit. But Hellboy Two is this it's it's very on par with the first one. It's just this creative, imaginative tale, and when you watch it. Like a big thought that has to go through your head is, holy cow, they worked the prosthetic and costume teams to death. Uh, like there is barely a person who is in a normal outfit. Uh, your two like main characters are first of all Ron Perlman in that Hellboy suit. That thing's got to weigh at least like sixty pounds of just crap on him. And then you have Doug Jones in the Abe Sabian costume. Um, and then, of course, all of the elves have the giant pale face. I mean, Selma Blair just drew the, 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 the long stick here and just never having to just give her some basic foundation, good to go. Um, no, I think that's uh, Jeffrey Tambor who just <laughs> yeah. shows up and, be, and does his best Jeffrey Tambor. This is just Guillermo del Toro off the leash. You know, everything is is this wonderful mystical fantasy world. You hardly go a scene where... You're, it's not some sort of imagination moment, or it's just not some sort of weird cog co- clockwork imagery is being shown, or someone's not in a costume of some sort uh, that looks really damn good. And I just got to say, like, this is just an impressive film that was made. This, I mean, the story was was is rock solid, but in just terms of a fantasy tale that has a beginning, middle, and end, very, very nice to follow and. Um, fun to watch, really. It's just a good movie. But what's what's a shame about this is that Hellboy doesn't get a lot of love with the money. In fact, Guillermo del Toro doesn't get a lot of love with the money. Skylar, hit me up with some money stats. For money, production budget on Hellboy 2 was $85 million. So that's, that's fair. Uh, it's kind of surprising considering the uh, level of prosthetics they used. You'd think that would have uh, added up to a lot more. But... Yeah, uh, I, mean, well, I mean, like for a film that's not grounded in realism at all, oh, eighty-five no. million dollars is a like that's a budget. <laughs> it is, and they clearly made the best out of it. Uh, domestic gross ended up being seventy-five point nine million dollars. Elsewhere in the world, it brought in eighty-four point four million for a grand total of one hundred and sixty point three million. So, made its budget back. Made Universal a little bit of money. Uh, it's a solid opening, but uh, probably just not quite enough for a sequel, as we have seen seven years later. Probably didn't help that Dark Knight came out literally the following week. Yeah. Okay. Hellboy 2 came out uh, July 11th, I believe it was. Did about $35 million its opening weekend. So almost half of its uh, uh, total money in the U.S. came from opening weekend. You know, good, solid. I'm sure people at Universal were patting each other on the back. 
Dark Knight comes out next week, and it's Hellboy is never heard from again, essentially. Oh, this movie just got swamped in the in the behemoth that was Dark Knight 2008. That movie was a black hole, and it consumed everything in its path, including I, this one. That's why I, – I mean that's why you just don't – it's also because Hellboy is such a similar movie to the general audience. Like if you were given a choice between going to Dark Knight or Hellboy 2 The Golden Army, which you are told are both superhero films, these those films are drastically different. But you don't know that going in you're always going to pick Dark Knight. Right. It essentially just comes down to which one is the more familiar brand, and Batman will always win that if it's between that and Hellboy. Uh, not to say Hellboy doesn't have its dedicated fans and whatnot, but... Number one dedicated fan of Hellboy is uh, Guillermo del Toro. <laughs> right, exactly. I'm sure he poured enough of his money into this movie. Well, I suppose if you're going to have one dedicated fan to a franchise, you could do worse than Guillermo del Toro. <laughs> I mean, especially with that man's vision. I mean, the the whole and we were just you know briefly talked about the the aesthetically pleasing just beauty of the whole film. That's that's totally del Toro. And you know, if you're going to have one fan, you might as well have him. Well, and yeah, and I say that because if you read some Hellboy uh, collected comics, a lot of a lot of collected works will have a a forward by some sort of famous person. A lot of the times it's like Stan Lee or um, another comic book writer or artist will write a foreword about the collection of comic books you're about to read. And in in a lot of the Hellboy collections, it's either Mike Magnolia, of course, or it is Guillermo del Toro. And those forwards are so fun to read because it's just Guillermo del Toro fawning over Mike Magnolia. Just, just unending compliments, calling the man a genius, a master of aesthetics, a master of dark and gritty and fantasy. Well, he's kind of an expert on that, so I would take his word pretty seriously. So let's segue right on into the comic book portion where we talk about where a lot of the inspiration for the film came from in its world of, of course, superheroes and comic books. And this movie is, like we've discussed, very much Del Toro off the leash, the best of what Guillermo Del Toro can do. Um, and when it comes to Hellboy, Hellboy is owned by Dark Horse, but let's take no mistake here, Hellboy is Mike Magnolia's creation. When anybody discusses anything Hellboy, it is almost always attributed to him. In fact, there are very rare occasions where he's not a part of the project all the material all the hellboy comics the abe sapien comics the bprd comics they're almost all written and drawn by mike magnolia this dude has taken his passion for this character and he has turned it into a franchise just by writing a bunch of stories because that's what he likes to do. His his process involves a lot of drawing first, so he's a very art-based guy. A lot of the Hellboy comic books don't have a fair amount of text. Uh, sometimes it'll involve a little text at the beginning describing a lot of folklore. Like he, he writes comics that are very much monster of the week. Hellboy will walk into a situation, and it'll be some folklore that Mike Magnolia read or researched at one point in his life, and Hellboy will fight it, and then there will be some sort of ambiguous lead-up to this 
uh, thing of Hellboy's destiny as destroyer of the world, and then Hellboy will walk away. That's like almost every story, and you know what? They're great because the art is beautiful. It's creepy. It's all get up. And when he finally does build to like a, a big season finale kind of comic, those are some of the best things I've ever read and looked at in terms of just comic books. It is mostly developed for the movie. There's no comic book that Magnolia wrote that where this storyline gets from. It's, uh, it's, it's a lot of what... Uh, well, draws a lot from Gaelic myth and origins and you know Guillermo del Toro's brain and we'll we'll talk more about that but what what does come from the comic books is of course characters like Hellboy, Liz and Abe Sapien who are the main 3 and we'll talk about I'll talk I'll go into length about those characters when we get to the first Hellboy movie but there's one character who gets introduced into this film who is the somewhat the shining star if you are a, a Hellboy fan, and that is Johan Kraus. Johan Kraus was created in 2003, and in the movie you know he is the, the guy in the containment suit with the sort of rotating gear mouth that has the little things that sort of click, and he is very stern, that giant thick German accent voiced by Seth MacFarlane of all people. <laughs> Which honestly, do you guys hear Seth MacFarlane when he does the Johan Kraus voice? Yes, <laughs> it's it's inevitable to hear that. Really reminds me of the goldfish from uh, American Dad, honestly. Yeah, okay, because I I didn't I didn't hear it until I attributed it to the goldfish, or it's Klaus of American Dad, Johan Kraus, and of course Klaus the goldfish. But the story of Johan is much different in the comic books. In that, they didn't really talk about the story a lot in the movie, but we're going to do a quick synopsis of his origin here. He's a mild psychic who was, of course, born in Germany, and his psychic powers involved talking to the dead. He was just a normal dude, right, with a psychic power, and then eventually he got involved in the seance that went wrong, and he became the only survivor of it. And survivor in a way that the only thing that remained was his ectoplasmic form. And therefore, he had to be put into an ectoplasmic suit, containment suit, or else he would dissipate forever uh, because it's really hard to keep air together. And when he lost his body, his psychic powers got supremely enhanced. They describe it as like if a blind person loses their sight, their hearing ramps up. And they just sort of said if a psychic person loses their body, their psychic powers ramp up to the point where now he could possess things without souls. He could give the dead temporary form so that they could talk to non-mediums. Um, and he no longer needs sleep. So he became a workaholic, and that became a major plot point in a lot of the stories, that he would discover things about people because he would just endlessly research things. And in terms of his behavior, it's very different from the film. When you read a Hellboy comic that features Johann Krauss, it is. He's a very compassionate member of the team. Uh, he's probably the most compassionate member of the team because he's the character that is closely associated with death. He's the most emotional person because he, he talks to people who have just died a lot. And, you know, that makes you either a hardened person or just very feeling and poignant. Uh, in the movie, he is cold, calculated. Waves his finger a lot, reprimands Hellboy for being reckless, 
Uh, in the commentary, Guillermo del Toro describes Johann Krauss as the embodiment of bureaucracy. Uh, or embodiment's probably the wrong word. Also, there are few ambiguous lines in the film that talk about this mysterious wife that he used to have, this ring that he always carries around with him. He even says in the movie, perhaps we'll talk about it at a different time when there's like 20 minutes left in the film. Um, and in the book, there's no there's no talk about Johan Krauss's wife. I think that was just a, a nice little ploy to say that he can change. He can become a better person, if person's the right word. Better manifestation. <laughs> a better spirit in the world. <laughs> And the only other thing I want to kind of talk about that deals with the books is is the BPRD. I think – I'm pretty sure they refer to it as the BPRD in the film. They don't refer to it as that that often, but that stands for the Bureau for Paranormal Research and Defense. And this is the organization that they all work under where, the, where you get a team like Liz Sherman, Abe Sapien, and Hellboy together, and it in, in the comic books – those are like some of the most fun to read because it's just like why don't we get it's 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 X-Men but with like adults and folklore and nonsense. It's just another take on a group of misfits who are all just trying to do their best <laughs> with what now, they've been given. Now does BPRD have its own like comic line of stories? Yeah. Okay, because I see those coming to the store every once in a while and I was like, what what is this? But I didn't never realize there was a connection. Yeah, uh, I mean, it all started with Hellboy books. Like Hellboy originally started on like the back of a magazine or something at a at a a, a comic book convention, and it grew into this this thing that Mike Magnolia just loved coming back to and building and building and creating this wonderful Anung Un Rama storyline, the beast who will eventually have a crown upon his head or some sort of translation like that. And that's obviously like an absolutely fascinating story of are you do you accept destiny, your fate? Or can you change it? Which is always just this this constant uh, conflict in in real life that almost everyone can relate to, and it's and it's just really really dug deep in Hellboy comics. Uh, and uh, that's all I really have to say about that. Like, go out and read them. They're all collected. Um, there, I I'm not sure if if Mignoli is still working on new stories. I'm sure in some way or another he's working on a story for some of those characters, um, but. They are absolutely great reads, fascinating, and you learn a lot about you know different mythology, like the the what do you call the the Russian the Yaga Baba? Is that what that's called? It's the Baba Yaga. The yeah, way, yeah. yeah, the other way around, Baba Yaga, Baba Yaga. Um, that's a frequent character, and you learn a, a lot about like the culture of how that myth came about, and in in, in a fun way where it's just like, how does this myth? apply to Hellboy and his journey to seek whether or not he is affected by everything around him or that he can just he can take hold of his own destiny because he has that right hand of doom that constantly plagues him in his life. But that's all I gotta say about comic books. It's just I could I mean I could talk about Hellboy for a while. I love those books. They are they're just so much fun and they're pretty quick to tear through too because like I said, Magnolia is keen on the artwork. And sometimes you just got to stop and look at it and go, damn, that's creepy, dude. That's some creepy stuff. But I digress. Let's move on to the music section where we have Skylar talk about some music scores that went into the film of Hellboy 2. Take it away. 
All right. Music this week on Hellboy 2, uh, composed by everyone's favorite, Danny Elfman, who is no stranger to the superhero score subgenre. Uh, taking over for the sequel from Marco Beltrami from the first film, which is always a good thing. I don't want to dogpile on him for all of this podcast, but yes, <laughs> I will continue to do that. Um, uh, music for Hellboy 2, basically what you can expect from a Danny Elfman score, dark, gothic, moments of light in all the mixture, though not, certainly not to the point of uh, his Tim Burton scores, which are much more wide, varied, all that fun stuff. Let's take a listen to Hellboy 2 titles. Does Danny Elfman have an obsession with bells? If I were pressed to answer, I would say yes. He likes his bells, as it were. Like that's but, because because that's like his signature thing. I mean, like every time you hear you hear like bells and just like dum 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 dum, like it's building to something. You go, is that is that is that Danny Elfman? Is he writing about Christmas and Halloween again? <sighs> At the same time, no. Um, it's funny you say that because of all the movies Danny Elfman scored in 2008, um, this one's probably closest to his quote-unquote formula, but it's still a little different. And you'll hear that in the track I've got coming up, the uh, training. But uh, take into account, Hellboy is a little more in his wheelhouse, all being fantasy, kind of that whimsy to it, dark as it may be. Other movies he did that year include Wanted, Standard Operating Procedure, and uh, Milk, the biopic on Harvey Milk. So this was a year where he really kind of spread out and tried new things, but this is uh, a score that's really more familiar to what he does. Let's take a listen to uh, Training. Danny Elfman's one thing. That dude has job security. I mean, he is a guy that is almost guaranteed to just write you a solid score. It's not – maybe it's, it's a, more times uh, than most other composers it will blow your socks off, but you can almost be guaranteed that, like, it's going to be fun. It's going to be up there. It's going to be jovial. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, the guy never disappoints. Uh, with this one, I can't say I ever really uh, – went out and tried to find it outside the movie, but 
I do recall that it worked very well in the context of the movie, and that's square one. So yeah, that's that's what you want as right. a movie maker <laughs> is like make it for the movie first, and then you know for people who like movie scores next. Uh, but uh, w- w- hold on, this this track was called Training. Was there a training moment in the movie where they said they were training for something? I think it's with the uh, antagonist early on in the film when he's... Uh... Oh, okay, when Prince Nuada's dancing around with his sword flinging. That's the one. Makes yeah, sense. Yeah. Okay. Oh, shoot, I should have asked you to play. Whatever the song is that happens right after Hellboy kills the water elemental... Where for a moment it's just like, hey, is everything we're doing here the right way? And then it stops. It, it, it actually does still touch on that a few moments later, but like just like the everything in the movie was so upbeat, and then out of nowhere it's like, hey, I know you killed that thing, but dude, think about it. It was the hmm. last of its kind. It's like, whoa, when did we take a U-turn into Somberville? I can't remember what that song is offhand, though, so... Okay. Well, any more on music? No, it's a little bit of a shorter segment today, because, you know, this one just kind of gets to the point. Uh, would you... Would you desc- Have you listened a lot to the first Hellboy soundtrack? No, I haven't, actually. Okay, uh, then following this next question, how many more Danny Elfman tracks do you think we are going to go through in the superhero world? On this podcast? Oh, yeah. Oh my god, so many. So many. We've got to get through uh, at least two Spider-Man films, two Batman films, uh, and depending on if we do any of the Men in Black films, it's it's at least still around ten. He also did the uh, the Flash television series from the 1990s. Whoa. <laughs> it's a little more on the outskirts, but... Okay, eventually we're going to all have to rank our favorite Danny Elfman tra- or Danny Elfman uh, scores from like yeah. one to three. But all, all three are going to be Nightmare, Nightmare Before Christmas. <laughs> all, oh, all, all three in the superhero world. Now what are they? Jack Skellington is my superhero. Very well. <laughs> uh, let's not forget by the time uh, we even get around to those movies, there will probably be a few more that have come out with Danny Elfman scores. Of course. Okay, so we're going to move right on to our science section where we have our scientific scholar, Ben Anderson, describe as best he can some moments in the film that we can sort of dissect on. Were they doing it right? Did they have some very solid scientific backing or just taking a topic and exploring it further? So let's start with, first of all, how you doing, Ben? Doing well. How are you? Good, good. And uh, I'm going to ask you first, let's talk about twins, all right? Twins first, but that's the best one. I was going <laughs> to say that for last, but yeah, we can do twins first. All right, then let me rephrase the whole thing. Okay. You, you only have two topics, right? I have three. Oh, what's your – you know what? You just take it away. You know what? No. You can you can take me through this because you're the one who wrote down what you wanted to talk about. Well, I, I thought you didn't want to talk about pyrokinesis. I never said that. Oh, okay. I said I don't have much to say on it. Well, then I don't want to talk about it because. Okay, well, let me let me let me say what I have to say on it then. God damn, <laughs> this should not be this hard. 
<laughs> we are falling apart at the seams here at SHMC. You're the falling apart. Has destroyed us. Take a <laughs> breath. <falling> apart. <laughs> All right, fine. Start with pyrokinesis. Uh, pyrokinesis means you can control fire with your mind. It's not a real phenomenon. Alleged cases have been shown to be hoax. Hoaxes. All right. So we're just we're just sort of you know what what if Liz Sherman had some sort of myth that was based on her that someone could pop a popcorn bag with just their brain. Yeah. I mean it's it's far better just to to you know throw kernels on onto your stove. Yeah, and then and then you get shot because there's a SWAT team there. That's a callback. <laughs> Um, uh, yeah, it is, but with bullets. Yeah, basically. Um, ectoplasm. In the movie, it's uh, some kind of spiritual energy. Woo. Oh, New you age. Just, you just jumped ectoplasm on me. All right, keep going. Oh, yeah. Uh, that's literally all I had to say about pyrokinesis. Um, ectoplasm, pretty much the same thing. Um, this, this so-called spiritual en- energy made solid or whatever not a real phenomena and really? it's yeah oh really 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 oh i thought oh okay if you're at a séance and the medium's like oh hey ectoplasm no it's just cheesecloth soaked in egg yolk <laughs> well what is what is it uh, i i've heard ectoplasm be described as when people take pictures um and then a lot of dots like white dots show up on the picture that's being described as like there was there was a spirit there because there's a lot of ectoplasm. No, that's just you have something wrong with your photo detector and should probably just buy a different camera. Okay, okay. Um, um, and or clean the lens. That's a dust motes usually. Just yeah, yeah. Clean the lens first before you replace your all camera. Well, I I so, know we're not we're not claiming the, to be ghost hunters here. In 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 the context of you know real-life um, stuff that happens. Ectoplasm uh, is also like the the fluid inside your cells. Oh, okay. Like, you know, the, the like there's fluid inside your cells and like the outer layer of fluid is called the ectoplasm and then um, the whole the whole of it is called cytoplasm and ectoplasm is like a particular form of cytoplasm or something, but that that's unrelated. Okay, because like I was sure like ectoplasm was a real thing in some way or another, but yeah. not necessarily paranormal. Yeah, it's it's a term in cell biology. It's just fluid inside your cells. It is not as it is in the film. Sorry. How did how not did sorry? People, is it was it just started as like one hoax? And then has just stuck on from then on out? Yeah, basically. So, um, like, when mediums would, like, give people, like, readings of the future or whatever, they'd have, like, just, like, a a wad of cheesecloth or fabric soaked in egg yolk or something. And then they'd just, like, bring it out in the middle of it when people weren't paying attention be like, ooh, look at this, this goo. That that's formed because there's spirits and psychic energy, blah blah blah, and people were convinced. Um, but that it they're hoaxes. Oh, all right. Now that makes Not, a lot more sense. Yeah. Uh, uh, it it also refers to the uh, condensation caused by 
the shockwave of a of a supersonic aircraft, the like pressure there um, causes air to condensate. That's called ectoplasm. Oh, I thought. But it's were, just. I thought those were microbursts. Yeah, it it's 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 a name for that. that I found looking up things on Wikipedia this morning. <laughs> um, researcher, but but again, not not spiritual energy made physical substance but rather it's just a cloud so so we have debunked ectoplasm yep via our sources our wikipedia good good Mm -hmm. we are the staunchest of researchers here oh i I definitely do my due diligence so tell me about your number one topic then uh in in the world of twins number one in the film we had Prince Nuada and Princess Nuala, who had this sort of physical connection where if one got hurt, the other would also get hurt, and they had a mild psychic link of sorts. I was just going to talk about how twins are used in medical and psychological research, because I didn't really want to talk about that at all. But this would be a good time to bring up uh, twin studies. Yes. Which is a very, like, a really important way of studying um, mostly psychology and genetics, where you look at pairs of identical twins and see what's the same and what's different, especially if they like live in separate families. So like tw- identical twins separated at birth, you can look at how they're different now and use that to assess what traits are genetic, what traits are caused by your environment, and to what degree different traits are influenced by genetics or environment. The old nature versus nurture study. Yeah, exactly. So, um, Didn't it used to be believed, though, in, in olden times, that, uh, that twins, the people who were bo- born as twins, had some sort of like psychic link? People used to believe that was a real thing, or do they still do? People still believe that. Um, I don't put much stock in psychic, paranormal, whatevers, but they do have the same genetics if they're identical twins. Or if they're um, if they're fraternal twins, they share, on average, about 50% of their genes. So that's cool. Can I yeah. jump in for a quick sec? Oh, yeah. Sure. Of course. Uh, I, and this is purely anecdotal. I know for a man of science such as yourself, you know, this, this, this may be malarkey and hokum. However, my mom is an identical twin. And there are several times in my childhood when my mom and my Aunt Louise would be nowhere near each other but having a conversation. Um, we Kids in the middle could hear them. They couldn't really hear each other from where they were. But that's, that's just, you know, anecdotal. Uh, and and there's been a, there were a couple of times when they were, you know, taking naps on opposite sides of the house and we could hear them talking in their sleep having a conversation. So I wouldn't just discount it altogether. This is just, as I said, anecdotal malarkum and hokum, right? Right? That's what that is. But what? it does. It's, well, it's I mean, if you have, if you have um, twins, like, are, are often, like, just closer than other siblings because they're the same age. They grow up together. And so, you know, you know they're just closer than average siblings, Um so it, it, you know it, it's 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 again like not very much a a, a a a scientific perspective of like because they are born within seconds of each other 
therefore there is some um, some mystical at attachment to their because of their biology, but more of because they are so closely related to each other in just experiencing the same experiences and and mm -hmm. drawing from the same perspectives because they are they are growing at the same time that 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 of course creates a connection and we don't really know how to fully explain the powers of that bond like you said like they have would have conversations yeah. from across because they just know each other so well that they're able to just be able to to sort of talk to each other without actually hearing the other person speak what would be really cool is experiments with separated twins to see if that that same kind of connection would occur because yeah my mom I definitely grew up with her twins so that you know that similarity thing I think there's probably something to that but if you wanted to discount telekinesis or not telekinesis um, telepathy between twins you'd want to do a separated twin study just getting back to your point about the twin studies being so important for a lot of reasons yeah twin studies are are um, really useful for uh, psychological and medical studies. We we have a believer and a skeptic here, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, that that's that's all I got on this movie. It's it's very 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 fantasy and and not sci-fi. So there's not a whole lot for me to go on here, but that's oh, fine. Man, that, I like I like how we were able to jump into this twin conversation though, because yeah. I never because I always thought I I have cousins who are twins. Um, who are who are identical, and I used to get them mixed up at, all the time. But now I, there are distinct differences. I mean, I didn't grow up with them or anything, but I'm like, Eric, Eric is the one over there, and 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 he's having he's doing his thing, and Andy is the one over there, and 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 less reserved than than Eric is. And as a kid, I was like, these two people are the same person, and I just assumed that they. <laughs> As a kid, you get a lot of things stuck in your head that's just like twins can read read each other's mind. I used to I used to believe that if one twin got hurt, the other twin would feel it in some well, or would know it. And certainly, the Del Toro's playing with this. That whole film is playing with that particular concept and the twin mythologies. There's tons of mytho mythology that goes along with twins, like Castor and Pollux um, in the stars in the Greek mythology, and we've got the Gemini you know, um, symbol for that matter, um, astrology, and just twins in general have so many interesting myths and legends attached to them and so many of these different sort of beliefs and perceptions that go along. And this film definitely draws on that, that, uh, that shared history. Fascinating. You're going to have to read more about twins, but not in a Mengele kind of way, in, a, in an average person kind of way. It's it's really good you brought that up considering the whole Nazi connection that we've been talking about today. <laughs> oh yeah, really, forgot about really really good to just clarify we're not interested in twins in a Mengele fashion. I I forgot about him because I try to forget about him. <laughs> Probably best. The the for those of you who don't know, look it up because you should have probably been taught about Dr. Mengele in the school system, and we're not going to teach you about it here. Uh, so it's gross. Because... It's just real gross, and we're we're a PG podcast. <laughs> that is fair. So that is that is a a final note on science. Um, hopefully, oh, if you we actually want to know. Um, go to our our subreddit if you are a twin and you've experienced similar to uh, Dr. Lauder's mother and and her her aunt. Um, 
have a similar experience, we want to know about it because like I I want to be a believer that like twins have a psychic connection of some sort. Um, I know we talk a lot about that they're sort of grown up at the same point and it's kind of makes them sort of the same person that they're able to predict each other very well. But I want something really, really weird. Tell me, tell me a story. Okay, so we're going to just move right on in to Dr. Lauder's section here as a, as a professor of cultural studies. Is that, is that in, this, in the right realm here? Yes, it's definitely in the right realm. There's, there's, it, cultural studies encompasses a lot of stuff. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, um, we're, we're going to talk a lot about myth here. Yeah. Uh, because that's what Hellboy deals with is just like, let's take a myth, let's m- have some fun with it, and build a fantasy fun story. Well, and, and that's definitely what's going on here. One of the things that I like most about the Del Toro movies is just how much they draw on all sorts of different elements of cultural myths from all sorts of places. Uh, the term for that is is postmodern, where we're looking at lifting elements of different pieces of stories from all sorts of places to form a cohesive whole that's a different story altogether. Uh, and that's what's really going on here when we have the Nawala and Nawada um, Twin pairing. They're drawing on a twin mythos. They're drawing on the the uh, the uh, Celtic fairy and fae mythos out of out of Ireland and England, Britain. Um, they're drawing on you know even the water elementals and things. That's actually Middle Eastern. The trolls are Western European, Eastern European rather. Um, all of these and tooth fairies. They're, I you know who knows exactly where that started, but I know I looked for my quarters when I lost a tooth. So this is. This is, you know, very much pieced together from all sorts of different traditions into a cohesive story, and that's the term for that is is postmodern or post postmodern. The, the crazier it gets, the more posts we can put in front of the word modern, really, when we when we think about it that way. And I personally like the Celtic traditions because I've got Celtic roots in particular, but that whole concept of the fairies. Um, and the fairy kingdom and so forth, that has got really deep roots, uh, particularly in the British Isles. And there's a lot of stories through that fairy mythos of, uh, of, that are designed to sort of keep children out of trouble. You know, don't go near there because the fairies will come and take you away. Don't go to this particular spot because the fairies will come and take you away. I mean, there's this sort of uh, you're very careful about where you go on the land. Um, you're very careful about talking to, to fairies because they'll trick you into doing things you don't want to do, and maybe you'll end up sleeping under, this, under, under a fairy mound for 100 years. There's, there's a, a lot of these sort of stories that are used um, sort of as illustrations of what will happen to you if you're not smart enough uh, to stay out of trouble and to stay away from all of these folks. And the, the elementals and things are all kind of in that same sort of tradition and, and these myths are kind of fun for that reason well what i'm looking at is is that they use the words you know king's king balor of the of the elves and prince nuada and when you when you when you search a little bit you learn that they're not talking about elves but these characters that existed in in irish mythology but they're called fomorians which is a supernatural race. They they apparently were gods who represent the harmful or destructive powers of nature. So the personifications of chaos, darkness, death, drought, blight, pestilence, all that stuff. And again, back to stories that are trying to teach you to stay away from things you shouldn't be getting into. Uh, you know, that's that's really what they are. Cautionary. That's the word I've been looking for this whole time. Cautionary tales. 
Uh, and, you know, Ireland in, in has a, a lot of those kinds of stories. I hadn't heard about the Fomorians one, frankly. But, you know, there's there's a, a lot of, of uh, counterparts in other cultures, too, like Rip Van Winkle. We're familiar with that story? The, the man who napped for 20 years? But the fairy stories are similar to that, too. There's several of them that, that have that same kind of theme. And Rip Van Winkle is actually a Dutch-based story. You know, so it's mm -hmm. it's you're being tricked into losing part of your life for one reason or another, or you're making a deal with someone and coming out the wrong the wrong end of the stick. You know, it's it's about being cautious about how you interact with people, being clever about um, how you conduct your life, and being really careful about the places you visit. And I'm, I suspect some of that early those early stories about about fairies stealing away children and so forth had more to do with kids who were wandering off into the woods and getting lost and you know dying of exposure to the elements than actually being stolen away by the fairies but there's that sort of cautionary thing that's going on with those um, and it's kind of fun in, in in this film because when you put all of those elements together the way that it has been done here we've got elements of all of that in here be careful you know, be careful about, you know, how you approach the fairies and what's this golden army thing and well, there's a crown and if I get hurt, you get hurt. So you've got all this sort of stuff. And, and you know, the bottom line is don't don't piss off the fairies, I guess. <laughs> well, I, mean, they, 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 I love their description of humans in that the humans were created with a hole in their heart that could never be filled. Uh, and I'm like, okay, thanks, Guillermo. Uh. <laughs> yeah, well, it's another argument for twins and that twin mythology, right? Because you've always got your perfect half if you have a twin. That's the idea there. Oh, okay. Because like the humans are allowed to exist even though they have an unbound hedonism. Just because they exist, they exist is like the fairy tale of of from the elves' perspective. Perspective. Um, also, I I do want to talk about uh, what you know about the character in the film, the Angel of Death who Hellboy has a small run-in with, uh, <laughs> with the, oh, excited uh, when, when, he's, when he's got that piece of metal stuck in him and she removes it with magical powers. Oh, well, and Death is, as a personification, shows up in nearly every mythology, every culture there exists, because Death is one thing none of us as humans can escape. That's just, that's, that's it. Um, and in a lot of uh, cultures, that has been um, personified in a way to make it seem more friendly, depending upon the mythos that it's a part of, or to make it seem even darker than it is. And of course, the most recent and most famous um, manifestation of the angel of death in contemporary mythos is in the Harry Potter movies and in the Harry Potter series. Because by the end, and I've, yeah, okay, spoilers, by the end, <laughs> Harry Potter... Um, has assembled a collection of magical artifacts that makes him the master of death. Um, oh yeah. Yeah, the the tale of the three brothers uh, in in that series of stories is is really about coming to terms with death. I really uh, hate it in Harry Potter how easy it is people to learn a spell that just murders someone in a second. Right. Uh, well, and uh, J.K. Rowling is brilliant at the same sort of cobbling together of mythos and fairies and creatures and things we've been talking about, too. Uh, those, those books are full of all sorts of usurpations of different, different kinds of, of uh, creatures and characters and magical structures. And, you know, hers was just a, a really unique spin on it that put that whole world together in one space. But that angel of death 
that that is that's constant across culture as a, as a as a as a personification as something that humans can you know talk to in the face of a concept that really is difficult um, for many people to deal with. So there's a personification there to make it easier to talk to to accept. Um, that's the idea anyway. I think still the uh, filmic inspiration for a lot of these uh, angel of death uh, portrayals is still the old uh, Bergman, uh, the seventh seal where much of the movie is around a knight's kind of dancing around being claimed by death. They'll engage in a chess match, uh, go back and forth about that. And eventually spoiler alerts, uh, death is kind of inevitable. Well, and, and that's, that's, I think why that particular character keeps coming back because a lot of storytellers are just really not obsessed necessarily, but someone they're always wanting to try to tackle that topic at some point or another, because we all kind of have to deal with it at some point or another. Um, and that's creepy enough. The scythe with the, <laughs> with the dark cloak and the, and the covered face. My, my, the one that I um, think of when I think of the Grim Reaper is actually the one in Scrooge. I always think of death from uh, Terry Pratchett's Discworld. To me, he's the definitive angel of death. <laughs> uh, and, and, and if they ever make a movie about Discworld, I would have death be voiced by Ron Perlman. Oh, Ooh. Ooh. Ooh, yeah. good choice. Um, I want to talk a little bit about that because why is that? Is it is that an American thing? Is that an every culture thing that that we pursue perceive death as essentially the words grim reaper, a black cloak covered, carries a scythe. Where does that all come from? Like why well, not? Scythes are used to harvest grain, so there's that. It's, it's time it's, to reap, a time to sow. Actually, some of that imagery comes from Revelations in the Bible. Oh, Bible. okay. Um, some of that particular imagery, but there, it really is a, a kind of a cross-cultural thing going on there. There's a lot of pagan symbolism in the Grim Reaper imagery as well, like the scythe harvesting. It's harvest time is always an end. You know, you're, you're, you're carrying away your seeds, you know, for the future, but there's also hope to that there because you are carrying away seeds to the future that you're harvesting. You're done. Okay. Uh, I think we're going to have to cut that short because we still want to talk about at least one more topic and that last topic is what's the deal with Hellboy 3 because Hellboy 2 had of course that big, that uh, that nice little cliffhanger of Liz is going to have two kids uh, and we still have not really reached the Hellboy deciding point of is he going to face his destiny as the destroyer of worlds or is he going to accept it. Okay, um, I just realized that she's having twins and they just killed twins. And that's like blowing my mind right now. Oh, crap. <laughs> that's right. Oh, that's, yeah, oh, now, now we're there. Um, but <laughs> the news on Hellboy 3 has been so up and down over the years, whether it's one report or another. And, you know, if you're Guillermo del Toro, you're probably sick of it by now. But it's been like, you know, he says he'll do it. He says he can't do it. Ron Perlman says he really wants to do it, but at the same time, it will kill him because at his age with uh, wearing, going through that prosthetic process again, like they had probably had to get up for like 6 a.m., be in prosthetics, be, be in costume design for like four hours before they can even start shooting, at least four hours. 
the process of making the Hellboy movie is obviously very uh, tedious, shall we say. And with uh, how much they brought in on the second one, eh, still in some middle ground as to whether it was quote-unquote worth it, mm-hmm. although it was good. Yeah, and well, the the current news is... Uh, the the most latest record, and you know this is not he's not written down on Guillermo has not written down on this, but is is that if the sequel to Pacific Rim does well, and first of all that sequel has to get made um, while it is financing in process, like that's there's still no guarantee. It, if if that sequel does well, then Legendary has said that they will b- b- loosely said that they would finance a Hellboy three film. And Guillermo says it'll take about $120 million to make um, while he's never, I don't think he's ever been given that much for a film. I don't remember how much Pacific Rim was budgeted at, but all I know is that Guillermo del Toro's movies barely make that much money in, in terms of big Hollywood films. Uh, like None of his movies except for Pacific Rim have made more than $100 million domestically. And when that, you listen to this podcast, do you hear that number at like 200, 300 all the right. time? Pacific Rim was made for 190 million, by the way. Okay. What 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 about Pan's Labyrinth? Because that movie is real good, and I assumed it would have made money, but again, I don't know. Yeah, it was Pan's Labyrinth was made for 19 million, made 83 million, million. So yeah. Oh, okay. I, I looked this up. Like every film that is directed by Guillermo del Toro. In, in, in the most profitable film he has is Pacific Rim at 101 million dollars domestically, um, and it was a uh, failure. Yeah, that's that's a that's a failure. Um, a lot of studios don't really look at worldwide. They they want to know the domestic because that's the more rock solid. Um, can, that's where your your numbers are more dependable. And and but if you adjust for inflation, Blade Two apparently becomes his most profitable film, and it, it would have made 118 million dollars. <laughs> Okay, that's okay. kind of funny. Okay, the thing is, Guillermo del Toro has terrible luck at getting projects made. Throughout the past ten years, he's been he's had at least six project shelves. In the Mouth of Madness, uh, The Haunted Mansion, Pacific Rim is basically dead now, or the sequel to it. What? Um, no, they took it off the schedule. No production. Oh. schedule whatsoever. He's going to make the Hobbit movies that those fell through. Yeah. Well, they didn't fall through. Someone else made them, right? Right. So it's, at last I checked, they are movies, but not made by <laughs> GDT. So. Uh, and, well, let's not to mention, he has still shelved Justice League Dark. Oh, yeah. that He's just been talking about that forever, but never gotten any steps made to make it, so... Oh, Guillermo del Toro, the master of hype. Unfortunately, yeah. Except when it comes to money. Anything else you guys want to talk about in the vein of Hellboy 3? Maybe someday it'll get made. <laughs> yes. I'm um, feeling like I have closure. We're good. I don't feel I don't feel closure. I want the big Hellboy epic. I really do. There's one more big story out there, and it's 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 not. I want a trilogy of Hellboy films. That looks like it's gonna do it today. Super fan, superhero movie club is recorded and produced by Triop Cop Productions. If you like what you hear, show us your support by going to iTunes.
which is currently our, our main provider. But ever since they've done that recent software update, I think we might have to find a new podcast outlet because a lot of people are leaving the iTunes podcast format very fast. Um, or maybe it'll change by the time this gets released. But please go to the ratings of whatever you get this from, whether it's iTunes or we are on Stitcher as well as Podbean, and give us a give us a, a rating. Don't have to write a review. We would appreciate a review. They're like little love letters that we treasure forever. But a a five star. It needs to be five stars. I'm sorry. If it's anything less than five stars, I mean, you know, just continue being apathetic. We don't we we don't <laughs> you don't care about rating us. We don't care about you not giving us ratings then. But if it's a five, if you're sitting on a five do it. Uh, if, if you want to talk to about about uh, what we just were talking about here with us, uh, check out our subreddit, reddit.com slash r slash superhero movie club. Uh, if you have any fun facts on the movie, if you want to tell me I'm wrong, uh, tell Michael he's wrong. I would love that. Yeah, he, he's going to love that. Actually, I'm going to love it more than he does. Um, but yeah, just we, we, we want to keep talking about these about these movies with you guys. So again, reddit.com slash r slash superhero movie club. Oh, that and, and, and twin stories. Again, we want to reemphasize that. Yes. We want your fantasy twins. So do you believe twins have a psychic connection or, or is it all genetic? How full of shit am I? We'll never know if you never if you don't post. Uh, SHMC also keeps up an active Twitter feed at SHMC or superhero MC derp. Uh, go there. Give us your questions, comments, concerns, stories about the first time you read about Joseph Mengele. That'll hey. be fun. <laughs> oh, no thanks. Now I'm sad. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Just end this on a downer. Why don't we bring it back up? Thank you so much, Dr. Amy Lauders, for joining us on the podcast again. You are welcome. It's always a good time with you guys. Three oh, cheers. Thank you. Yay, <laughs> I got to say, SHMC gets the freaking best guess on, I mean, the other week we had Andy Simon who was great, and then of course Twitter Tom who is just a dream, and and now and now Amy's back for another show. It's fantastic. I this is this is this is awesome. You, you're all you're all great, and we I'd love to put all of you on the show at once, but of course the just medium doesn't really allow for that. <clears throat> so finally, it's time to say goodbye. That'll do it today. I'm your host, Michael Maurer, James Gather Hutzma. And Ben Anderson. With Dr. Amy Lauders. And I hope you all have a super week. You know.